Welcome to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December 7, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this podcast, Dr. Denise Kirk presents, Support-Based Caregiver Treatment Differentially Impacts Outcomes in Spouses and Parents, a pilot study. Dr. Kirch is a senior research scientist for neuropsychology and neuroscience at Kessler Foundation. For more information about Dr. Kirsch, click on her bio link within the description of this podcast. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Our last lecture for this morning is Denise Kirk. So Dr. Kirk is a research scientist in the Traumatic Brain Injury Lab at Kessler Foundation. Her topic today is support-based caregiver treatment differentially impacts outcomes in spouses and parents. It's a pilot study. Good morning. I'm going to be talking today about a support-based intervention for caregivers of individuals with brain injury that we conducted at Kessler Foundation. Here are the learning objectives. I am aware that these are available, the lecture was available online, so you can refer to these, and there's also some materials at the end of the presentation that you'll be able to access as well. Traumatic brain injury has catastrophic effects on not only the individual who experiences the injury, but also the family system. And family members often have to end up assuming the role of the caregiver And with that comes the need to assist for physical, cognitive, financial, and leisure activities for the survivor. The thing is the impact of TBI on caregiver is often overlooked due to the need to attend to the patient and to attend to um, their medical needs, their psychosocial needs, and so on. So the caregiver often gets overlooked. There is a large body of literature on caregiving in general, and TBI specifically, that talks about the the resulting sequelae or the, the issues that a caregiver is going to suffer through the experience of their loved one experiencing this injury. And this ranges broadly from psychological factors to physical factors to cognitive factors. Some of the psychological, psychosocial factors include an increased report of stress and burden, an elevated number of depressive symptomatology and anxiety symptoms. They can report problems with health, literally physical, medical issues, increased in in, um, issues related to heart function and to... um, 
uh, other areas within medicine. Um, there are also areas of cognitive function that are reported as problematic. So, for example, people report an increase in memory problems, increase in, in, in uh, attention problems. And coming with all of these other symptoms really has a prominent impact on the marital relationship and can impact marital satisfaction, longevity, and a consistent report across all the literature really is social isolation. The thing is, despite the fact that we have this very large body of literature on what the caregiver endures in that caregiving role, there are very few interventions available for caregivers of individuals with TBI. Now that's beginning to change. We have found that in both the civilian and the military population, there's been a shift. In fact, within the civilian population, there's been an increase in research um, that is focused on treating caregivers of individuals with brain injury, which is very, very positive. We've also seen that funnel through into our funding organizations, both nationally and, in, and, and locally. So, for example, the National Institute on uh, Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research now funds projects examining coping, appraisal, and social support in brain injury. We see locally that the New Jersey Commission on Brain Injury Research has been funding work on caregiver studies, including, including the study that I'm about to present to you today. And another national uh, organization, the National Institute of Nursing Research in 2017, put on a summit where they focused on the science of caregiving, bringing voices together. Within the military community, there's been a focus mandated down from Congress. There's been a couple initiatives that have taken place. The first one is that Congress mandated the development of a family caregiver curriculum. They also mandated that families of individuals who sustained a TBI be involved um, in a, uh, the focus of a 15-year longitudinal project looking at individuals who sustained traumatic brain injury through operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. And additionally, there's been a focus by the United Health Foundation, um, which was released in 2010, focusing on caregivers of veterans report, which highlighted the negative sequelae for caregivers of veterans. So this is all very positive shift in our thinking about the needs of caregivers who are tending to our survivors. And one thing, however, though, that's not really developed well in the literature just yet is the individual needs of those caregivers by role. So we know that caregivers in general have needs, but and there's certainly a caregiver, uh, there's certainly commonalities in what a caregiver experiences regardless of what their role is, whether that can include managing issues of behavioral problems in their survivor, whether it can mean problems of being socially isolated because of the need to tend to not only their own responsibilities, but to the responsibilities of their survivor, which doesn't often give them time to engage in social activities. But there are unique challenges. And specifically for spouses, we find that there's a report of the loss of the intimate relationship. And so not only do they mourn the loss of the identity of their survivor, but they also then are mourning the loss of that intimate relationship. And they also experience an increase in anger and frustration owing with the fact that they have to shoulder not only the burden of their own responsibilities, but now the burden of the responsibilities of their partner. 
There's also unique challenges for the parents, and those can include mourning the loss of the sense of the future that they thought that they had for their child, and thinking about what are the life trajectory concerns. What happens when I pass? What will happen to my survivor? So given this information from the literature, we sought to conduct a study that evaluated the efficacy of a support-based treatment for caregivers, but specifically to look whether the difference in benefit from that treatment varied by the role of that individual caring for the survivor. We enrolled individuals who were caregivers uh, of individuals with brain injury. They were both parents and spouses. And we assessed them on a number of different domains. These included caregiver burden, there's some uh, depressive symptomatology and anxiety. We also looked at grief because we felt that was uh, an important unaddressed issue. And we also looked at, on, on the, the positive side, we looked at whether there was a use of spirituality and whether there was improved self-efficacy. The treatment consisted of, um, they, they showed up, they were randomized into either a treatment group or a no contact control group. After they were randomized, they were evaluated at baseline on those measures that I just described. And then they underwent either the treatment or a period of three months where they weren't contacted at all. After that period of time, they were evaluated again and then they were crossed over to the other arm. So if they were receiving treatment the first three months, they crossed over to a period of no contact. If they weren't contacted for the first three months, they crossed over to a period of treatment. And then finally, we evaluated them at the end of that second three-month period. The treatment consisted of three components. The first was monthly, hour-long support groups. And I'll get into a little bit more detail in, of these in a moment. The second component was weekly check-ins in between those monthly support groups. And the third one was the provision of resources. So with respect to the treatment, the support groups were conducted by two certified rehabilitation counselors. And there were several constructs that were targeted through the, the series of the support groups. And these were determined based on feedback from some of you may know, Betty Collins, who uh, used to um, be at KR and conducted the support groups here. And she was critical in advising us as to what themes most often came up in those support groups with individuals, uh, survivors, and their caregivers. And um, they were social isolation, behavioral problems, and relationship identity. So the structure of each support group began with a small period of psychoeducation where the topic was introduced. And then generally that naturally led into a, a discussion about that topic. And sometimes we didn't even get all the psychoeducation in before uh, everybody started opening up and wanting to share. And then that was supported by uh, the, the therapist who in, in directed the conversation to make sure that everyone had adequate time to participate and validated the experiences that people were feeling. We initially decided when we started the study that we were not going to exclude individuals if they weren't able to attend the inpatient, uh, the uh, excuse me, the in-person support groups, because based on our pilot data, we were aware that one of the biggest burdens for caregivers is the ability. To for them to tend to self-care, such that they often don't leave the house for medical appointments, even when 
medical issues are serious, they certainly don't get out to socialize. So we didn't anticipate that many of them were going to be able to attend the in-person support groups. But we actually found quite the opposite. We found that we had virtually no individuals who failed to make any of these sessions. So that was really positive for us and, and certainly positive for their ability to benefit from the treatment. The weekly phone support consisted of contact based on the particular preference of the caregiver. Some individuals wanted a quick email check-in and others wanted a phone contact. And that phone contact entailed everything from uh, assessing the psychosocial needs that the person had, what situation was currently going on at home. Sometimes that shifted throughout the course of the study. And then once those issues were identified, the rehab counselor was able then to provide educational materials, information regarding community resources if they were needed, as well as assistance seeking therapy service providers. And it goes without saying that merely the fact that the individual checked in and provided, the, the rehab counselor checked in and provided psychosocial report was also beneficial in and of itself. These are, um, I'd like to highlight some of the resources that were provided because these varied quite broadly. And they were certainly individualized. So there wasn't a packet of things that were generically sent out to people. It was literally tailored to what the needs were based on those phone conversations or those email check-ins that took place. And one of the things that we provided were tip cards. Lash & Associates is a brain injury-specific publishing company. And they provide a wealth of materials for individuals and their families with brain injury. And these tip cards cover a broad range of areas from brain injury to families, emotions, behavior, cognition, and caregiving. So there were a number of these tip cards that were relevant, including one on compassion fatigue, one on couples, and one on helping sons and daughters, as well as many, many more. In addition to the tip cards, there were a number of different domains of information and resources requested by individuals. And they included, for example, caregiving. The rehab counselor provided referrals to caregiving webinars that were going on at that particular time, respite care resources, as well as a way to sign up for an e-newsletter produced by caregiver.com. She also provided resources for brain injury specifically, so the Brain Injury Alliance of America and the Brain Injury, uh, excuse me, the Brain Injury Association of America and the Brain Injury Alliance of New Jersey. There were also resources requested for mobility and independence, and these included canine companions and therapy dog organizations, as well as information from wellspouse.com, transportation options available to uh, caregivers and their, uh, excuse me, available to the caregiver's uh, survivor to be able to get to medical appointments as well as medical alert systems for those that weren't as independent. They asked for educational and vocational resources. There was one parental caregiver that was looking for resources on colleges for their child who had disability services with experience with brain injury. They requested vocational rehab and vocational programs in general. There was also a need for financial and legal support. And the resources provided there were related to guardianship, Medicaid, and social security disability services, as well as wills. And additionally, entitlements and funding opportunities. I'm told that the TBI fund is one very, very excellent resource that uh, helps with financial needs. 
And lastly, psychological resources. So throughout the course of the study, and I'll circle back to this at the end, there was an express need for um, support beyond the end of the study. And so some of the psychological resources were referrals to the New Jersey Psychological Association, local support groups that helped survivors as well as the caregivers, and educational materials on fatigue, as well as ways to help manage the psychological impact of caregiving, including ways to relax, diaphragmatic breathing techniques, journaling, physical, the impact of and the benefit of physical exercise. So now that you have an idea of what was offered throughout this intervention, let's get to the study. So the goals of the study were to evaluate the efficacy of this support-based intervention, but we wanted to look specifically um, within role. So, but for this first analysis, we wanted to look at a larger snapshot and we evaluated the efficacy overall by a two by two ANCOVA. So we looked at whether the role mattered and whether that interacted with whether they received treatment versus whether they went on with life as usual in that no contact period. And statistically speaking, we co-varied for the order because, as you know, some people came in, they got the treatment period first, and then they crossed over to no contact, whereas other people started with no contact and crossed over to the treatment. So we wanted to make sure that we statistically uh, addressed that. In our second analysis, here we're focusing on the role. So we want to know within each group what happens to them. How are they impacted by the treatment on those outcome measures that I mentioned earlier? The sample consisted of 18 spouses and 19 parent caregivers, and this is a summary of the demographics. These groups did not differ with respect to any of these uh, demographics, whether sex, age, education, or a number of years in caregiving. Here are the results. When we looked at the ANCOVA, we found that there's an interaction. In, in the interaction is important because that shows us that there is a different pattern of effect happening for parents than there is for spouses. And specifically, we saw that in the caregiver burden domain. And I present p-values, a column of p-values, which tells us our statistical significance. But because the sample was relatively small, I think it's more important to look at effect sizes. And we see that this is, if you refer to the bottom, there is the, do I have a pointer here? Yeah, so we see that a 0.112 effect size is between moderate and large. So that's fairly strong even for a small sample size. We also saw notable differences or notable interactions in two other domains, which is grief and spirituality. And those were small to moderate effect sizes. So that tells us that a different pattern is happening between the two groups. So let's go then to look at the individual analyses, what's happening within groups. This is the pattern for spouses. So let me just orient you to these graphs. On the axis on the left, we see that this is the score. So this is an overall z-score, and it shows that um, an increase in the score is related to the category. So an increase in the score is an increase in related to caregiver burden. And if we look at just the spouses alone, we see that after treatment relative to after the no contact control condition, we have an increase in burden, an increase in depression, an increase in anxiety, an increase in grief, 
and less use of spirituality and lower self-efficacy. Okay, so now I know what you're thinking, like this is going in the wrong direction. Uh, and it certainly is, but hold that thought because I'm gonna get to that in a little bit. When we look at, um, uh, but uh, excuse me, but before going on, what's notable statistically is that the effect sizes for three of these different categories were notable and that depression was between a moderate to a large effect size as was anxiety and self-efficacy. All right, focusing now on parents. We see that after treatment, relative to after the no contact period of time, we see that although they also increased in depression, increased in anxiety, and showed lower self-efficacy, we saw some improvements in some areas. So we saw a decrease in burden, a decrease in grief, and an increase in the use of spirituality. And statistically speaking, these were fairly robust effects. When we go back to look kind of the overall pattern of what has been, uh, of, of the experience of the caregivers after the treatment, we see in general the spousal caregivers showed consistent worsening across domains, with, uh, including burden, anxiety, depression, grief, and less spirituality and self-efficacy. The caregivers in th that were spouses expressed to us when we evaluated their, mm, their perception of what the intervention was like after the fact, they said that they had some unique needs. And specifically, one quote that captures this was, it was hard to be in a group with caregivers not in the same situation as myself. When it comes to couples, I would have liked if we had discussed how to reinvent the relationship. In contrast, there was some variability in whether caregivers benefit from the treatment. The parents showed increases in improvements in some areas and decreases in some others. And the qualitative feedback we received from parents captured the idea that overall they really did find the support very beneficial. I liked the fact that all of us could relate to each other. Any advice first was firsthand given by a caregiver, which is totally different than a friend or a, care, or a healthcare provider. I got a lot of out, out of it and did not feel alone in this journey. Another quote, it was a time to share our feelings without judgment or someone telling you what you should or should not do. I felt safe, validated, and walked away with a better emotional status than when I walked in. So how can we interpret these findings? Because we were clearly very upset by the fact that perhaps we had caused harm to our spousal caregivers. What happened? Well, we actually got overall feedback from them that they found the treatment beneficial. One caregiver said, I felt safe, validated, and walked away with a better emotional status than when I walked in. Another caregiver said, I learned a lot about myself through the surveys, things I didn't realize that I didn't give much thought to, things I didn't realize I gave too much thought to, and things I probably should have thought about but didn't. And the takeaway message is that the way we interpret this is that we opened up the door to healing. These caregivers, some of them had been caregiving for many, many, many years, had never sought psychological support many years after the injury, and they're finally participating in this group where they had the chance to open the field, open up and share their feelings to a group of peers, and they found it cathartic. And so while on our outcome measures, it seems as if, it seems as if things have worsened 
addressing difficult things in life, addressing painful things is challenging. It's not easy. And just because there is an, an initial worsening of symptoms doesn't mean that you're not beginning a very important journey to healing. And in fact, this was validated by the fact that when we asked the two different groups of parents and spouses whether they intended to or already had started seeking additional support outside of the scope of the treatment or beyond the participation in the study, four of the spouses and one of the parents said that they were going to. So that is very positive. But what to do with this? So what are the next steps? One of the things we wanted to know was, well, what could we have done better? What areas did we need to address that maybe we didn't? Three months is really great, but it's very short in the grand scheme of things. You can't really cover much ground in three hours, even if there is individual support. This is a life-changing event, and it's important to have someone assist you in this journey for a significant period of time. It's not something you adapt to overnight. So we sought to find out what were those areas of unmet needs, and we found that the topic of grief came up prominently. One caregiver said the grieving process was unmet. How do we accept the normal and try and stay focused on the positive and not dwell on the negative? And another caregiver felt that there was a scary feeling of the unknown. The grief of knowing that things will never be the same is sometimes overwhelming. And if you think about it, grief is an area that's very difficult to address. Like the previous talk on sexual functioning, it's not really socially acceptable to say you're mourning the loss of the person who is still alive in front of you. And it's a very difficult topic to address because of that reason. That may be the reason it's not often addressed in support groups. It may be the reason it's not addressed in interventions. And so because of this unmet need, we felt it very important to pursue this uh, following up line of research addressing this need. But broadly, the takeaway message that we found today is this under this the results from the study underline the fact that it's important to differentiate treatments for caregivers depending on role. There's certainly an overlap in the, um, the needs in terms of the burdens experienced across caregivers regardless of role, like we've mentioned social isolation, dealing with difficult behavioral issues with the survivor. However, we see that there are some unique needs that are presented in this study and in the beginning of the literature, which is, um, there's a couple kind of, there's a couple good articles. One of them is referenced at the end of this talk that you can look to for, for information on that. But in general, grief is that topic that comes up that we feel that we're going to follow up on. So the next steps for us are to really look at a specific study called the Life Reentry Program. And it's a web-based grief counseling intervention that addresses this underlying feeling of loss associated with a person who's still surviving. And this is important because when a person is experiencing an ambiguous loss, so that's a loss where there's not closure because the person continues to be present and you continue to care for the person, that often impacts the way a person then learns to approach different activities in their life and how they, how they deal with those, how they derive pleasure from life. And that may be feeding directly into whether those individuals are experiencing greater depression and anxiety. And 
And as a matter of fact, it may be that the metrics that we're evaluating, the depression and the anxiety and the stress, they may be driven by this underlying feeling of grief, which really is not being addressed. So I know I finished up earlier than, than others, um, but I'd like to thank Andrea Galliano and Nancy Charvelotti as collaborators on this project, and the funding agency is the New Jersey Commission on Brain Injury Research. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.